All right, so I am continuing uh, week four, A Time to Heal. We're walking through the book of Ezra, talking about rebuilding from ruins. Uh, I think we can, you know, Ezra is a book about rebuilding from ruins. Hopefully there's a lot that we can apply to our own lives in seasons of rebuilding or renewal or when we look at things and say, wow, that's a mess. <laughs> You've been there where you're oh, that's a mess. And we wait on God for... for uh, for help in, in rebuilding. So uh, to get started today, I'm calling today's installment um, Cheeto's Lip Balm. Cheeto's Lip Balm. So it's 2005, and um, Frito-Lay ruled the world, ruled the snack world, as they still do, right? And uh, have, you know, great products like Fritos and Cheetos and at some point, there was a marketing meeting, 2005, at Frito-Lay, went something like this, you know, well, life is good here at Frito-Lay. We have products like Cheetos and Fritos that invoke uh, salivation and hunger pains in the bodies of Americans everywhere. Profits are up, so is morale. Things are going great, but there is still money to be made. Why just look down the street at the good folks at Chapstick? Their brand is synonymous with uh, lip protection and restoration. People rely on them so much that those little black sticks are near the cash register at the front of convenient marts and grocery stores and gas stations everywhere. We need in on that. Why, if we take the love America has for Cheetos and combine it with the trust America has for chapstick, we can get in on the lip balm market. And in 2005, Cheetos lip balm was launched. Not for very long, <laughs> but they made a run. It's widely considered one of the top ten worst products of all time. Now, it wasn't just Cheetos that had this or Frito-Lay. <clears throat> Clairol in the 70s, synonymous with women's hair care. Um, there was a marketing meeting at some point in the 70s went something like this. You know, things are good here at Clairol. We are uh, trusted by millions of women uh, to protect and enhance one of their greatest assets, a full head of beautiful flowing hair. Profits are up, and so is morale in this company. We're renowned for uh, wonderful hair care products. But you know what? There's still money to be made. Why, look at the good folks at YoPlay just down the street. Women everywhere flock to yogurt. It's sold in um, grocery stores and convenient marts, and uh, it's, it's synonymous with, with health. And, and so surely if we were to take what they're doing at YoPlay and combine it with what we're doing here at Clairol, we could say things like, if you think uh, yogurt does wonders for your figure, wait till you see what it does for your hair. And they said, brilliant, and launched this product, uh, Clairol, touch of yogurt shampoo. It was a real thing for a very short while in 1979. 
It didn't last long when they got things confused, when they lost their focus. And the same thing, uh, there was a point when uh, Harley Davidson uh, tried to make a run with uh, you know, Giorgio Armani at the cologne business. Uh, Colgate made a run at TV dinners for a short while. Like the, These companies, uh, things are going great, but then they get distracted by the success of others. It's easy to do, right? And then things get all messy. Starbucks, um, man, they almost ran themselves into the ground. They tried to make a run at a greater uh, menu uh, variety. They, you know, look at what McDonald's has. We need in on that. And then they got in on the entertainment industry with um, uh, record labels and things like that. And, and there was a point when you <clears throat> walked into the shop, uh, the, the numbers were tanking, and, and they rehired their uh, former CEO who realized, well, they're trying to enhance speed so they stop grinding coffee, and then they got smells of sausage and eggs competing, and, and you, know, you walk in, and, and now it's about entertainment industry, and what he said was, we got to get back to people walking in and getting hit in the face with the aroma of the coffee. That's what makes Starbucks Starbucks. See, they got confused and things got diluted because they tried to do too many things at once and it really messed up a good thing. Now, in another field altogether, um, if you look at athletic science, um, scientists realize that uh, this is sort of the same thing with, with an athlete. They, um, uh, not too long ago, tried to discern what is it that separates a great elite athlete from just a good athlete? Like, what makes the greats? And so they started with golf, and, and it's what's known as the, the athlete's quiet eye. The athlete's quiet eye. And they noticed that the best of the best golfers, if they were to monitor their brain and their focus on, like, just their physical eye focus, that the best of the best would stay focused on a small part of the golf ball through the shot and even well after the shot. For a fraction longer and better and more solid than the merely good. And they realized that having a quiet eye, not being distracted mentally or even physically by what's going on around, that's what separates out the best of the best athletes. The quiet eye, the ability to stay laser-focused and not be distracted by the things going on around you. So with those examples, let's get into this scripture today. It's going to be a, just a short section of Ezra. It's a disturbing section of Ezra, but I think it relates back to this quiet eye or this Cheetos lip balm thing where, where, where you realize when we get distracted, and I think this is important for us because think about our life in suburban America. Would you say that it's quiet, low-key, and everyone around is respectful of our, of our, of our uh, time and, um, and privacy? Or is it loud and noisy and chaotic with everybody wanting a piece of our focus? I think everybody wants a piece of our focus. So this, this is, I think, really important material for us to relate with. Now, this story, you know, it happened thousands of years ago, but I'm always amazed at how this stuff circles right back around to life today. So um, let's, let me review real quick where we're at, just if anyone's new or whatever. 
Um, God's promise throughout the Old Testament to the Israelites is you are my special tribe of people, and if you will worship me alone, if your heart will be wholeheartedly devoted to me, and don't go off into you know, worshiping other gods, you, you focus on me and my way of life, then I will bless you and protect you and increase you and you know, bless you abundantly and all that. And if you mess up and if you worship other gods, I will scatter you. I'll let other nations destroy you and carry you off, but I'll always bring you back and we'll get it right. Okay, you, you will be devoted to me eventually. And so <clears throat> there's a point um, 70 years before the book of Ezra was written. It's right around the time Jeremiah was written, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. It's called the Babylonian Captivity or the Babylonian Exile. Uh, God did just that. He withdrew because they were worshiping all kinds of stuff, doing all kinds of stuff. And, um, and so God withdrew. The Babylonians captured uh, Jerusalem. They destroyed Jerusalem. They scattered the Israelites. And now, at the book of Ezra, uh, God is regathering them, and he's going to give them another chance to get it right. And they're rebuilding the temple and rebuilding Jerusalem. And they have this great um, moment of, of uh, this great opportunity to unify their focus around God. Because the problem is... That you know, so so Clairol had their meetings, and Cheetos had their meetings, and Starbucks wanted, um, you know, what McDonald's had on the menu and all that stuff. And but the Israelites, man, life is good here in Israel. God is blessing us. We are protected. But those people over there in their worship, man, they got those orgies. That looks amazing. We we want that. We and the STDs to go with it, or. Life is great here. We're protected. We have walls. We have prestige in the world. But, but those people over there, they're throwing their children in the fire to worship their gods. How cosmopolitan is that? We want in on that. And their hearts were all over the place, and so they were scattered because we need pain. Really, God has to use pain to get our attention a lot of the times because we're stubborn. And now they have a chance to get it right. And I say all that because this is some harsh stuff we're going to read. But it's because of the problem at hand. So this is in Ezra chapter 9. The leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. They have taken some of their daughters as wives, some of the people's daughters as wives, for themselves and their sons. In other words, they've intermarried with these other cultures. And have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials, the spiritual leaders who should know better, have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So the problem on the table is, centuries ago, God had told them, I need a unified heart. <clears throat> I need you to worship only me. So do not intermarry with other races. Now, it's important, this is not about interracial dating or interracial marriage. This is about interfaith marriage. And we're not talking about, like, you know, a Jew and a Christian uh, where there's some similarities. We're talking about, like, like the... 
one of the spouses, let's say the husband, is a devout follower of Jesus and you know, praying for the baby overnight for God's protection, and the wife is, is a Wiccan priest cult leader who's like invoking demons and praying for demonic protection over the baby. Like that's the kind of differences we're talking about here. That's the problem on the table. It's not interracial marriage. It's interfaith and not just like similar faith with a little bit. It's not like a Lutheran married a Catholic. This is like demonic stuff that's being welcomed in to the household. So it created a huge problem because they're trying to unify with wholehearted focus finally, but they have these intermarriages with these interfaith practices that's going to make this nearly impossible. So we move on to this in chapter 10. We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. And then there's this whole big, and if you've been reading Ezra, you've seen this. There's this whole big process of sending out and separating away these families who were intermarried. Now this was a very rare thing here. Done with great pain and weeping as they somehow separated and sent away the wives and children who represented um, an impasse of restoring the wholehearted devotion of the Israelite people. It's a very painful process, and you don't see this kind of thing very often in Scripture, but this was a moment to push the reset button, to separate out everything that made wholehearted devotion to God impossible. And scholars agree that this was the moment, that after this moment, after this separation and this renewed opportunity to rebuild the city of God, Jerusalem, never again did the Israelites turn their hearts away from worshiping only God. Now, there are human beings like you and me. They had their They had their struggles with legalism and things like that. They had their heart issues, but never again did they incorporate the faith practices of other faiths. So this was an all-in moment of wholehearted devotion, of unified clarity to who and what life was all about. This was the moment. So one of the painful lessons of Ezra is that God demands an undivided heart from us. He wants wholehearted devotion. And one of the enemies of that is when we have a mixing of ideals and when we mix too far with the culture around us. And this can certainly apply to who we marry. But that's more, uh, there's more than one way to be fused too far with an ungodly culture that keeps us from giving God our whole heart. And when we allow things to divide our focus and divide our allegiance to God, things get bad. That's one of the messages of Ezra. 
Now, Jesus made it very clear that what he wanted from his followers was absolute, wholehearted devotion. If you say yes to Jesus, that is your number one pursuit for the rest of your life. I want to read this um, from Luke 14. This is an extremely important passage of Scripture. If you say yes to Jesus, or if you're thinking about saying yes to following Jesus. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Now, when you read the Gospels, any, that's your cue. Large crowds were following with Jesus. You can expect Jesus is about to sort things out. Because Jesus was not about fanfare. So whenever you see large crowds are following Jesus, you can always like get that little lump in your throat. Uh-oh. Jesus is about to say some stuff here to separate things out. Turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus' PR department is walking with them, and they see the huge crowds, and life is good. And they're like, Jesus, come on, man. Why are you going to say all that stuff? Things are going well here. Now, for the life of me, and I complain about this every time I read this passage, I have no idea why the translators chose to say, hate your father and mother and children and sister and brother. We're not allowed to hate even our worst enemy, Jesus says. That Greek word has a spectrum of meaning, can mean anywhere from hate to despise, all the way to like hold in a distant second. Now, knowing the other teachings of Jesus, which clearly eliminate the possibility for hate, what do we think Jesus is trying to say here? Hold in a distant second. Like if you can't keep your family at a distant second and everything else at a distant second, don't bother trying to be my disciple. He's saying, I am first, and remember that at the time of this, the cross wasn't yet associated with Christianity or Jesus. It was just a Roman torture execution instrument. So he's saying, unless you carry your cross, he, he, he's, he's, when he's saying that, he's saying, unless you die to yourself, unless you die to your dreams and your aspirations as compared to what I want with your life, don't bother. So what's he saying? He's saying, you better have that quiet eye if you're going to follow me. You better not get caught up in distractions if you're going to follow me. You better be wholeheartedly devoted to me if you're going to follow me. Now, with that, we get eternal life, forgiveness of sins, peace, fulfillment. Like, it's not a bad deal. But it requires us to commit everything to following Jesus, to receive what he is willing to give. That's the deal. So Cheetos had chapstick. Clairol had yogurt. The Israelites had Babylonian culture. Starbucks wanted to add McDonald's-style breakfast sandwiches. Here's some of the things <clears throat> that I think compete <clears throat> I see this in my own life and in the lives of, of a lot of other people that I talk with. These are some of the leading competitors 
for wholehearted devotion to Jesus, I think, in my, in my opinion. Things to check in our own lives, okay? The first I'm going to call suburban family opportunities. <coughs> suburban family opportunities. Young families in the suburbs. And I used to say, like me, but I know that now I have, you know, middle school and high school, and I'm starting to creep out of that young family category. Um, There is a deep desire for our children to not miss out on anything. That's not a bad thing. But there's huge categories of people exploiting that. And, and we live in a suburban context where there are so many opportunities for us and our kids to engage in, and we will be run ragged if we don't set boundaries and are overwhelmed by our desire for suburban family opportunity. And at the top of the list are your extracurriculars and travel sports. Now, I love watching my boys play travel baseball. Love it. And, and we devote from mid-April through July to darn near every weekend and most weeknights. I mean, I think last year we had like 86 games in 57 days or something like that. There's got to be an off-season. There's got to be an off-season, or you will have handed over your family's faith journey to organized sports and opportunities. I see it by the dozens, and again, I'm in this with you, but I see it by the dozens. A young family with toddlers comes to Polaris. And they start coming every week, and it's their first church experience. And, and they, they talk after a few months of coming every Sunday how meaningful it is. Maybe they get baptized, and their kids are learning about the Bible, and they talk about their, their family developing their faith. And then their kid gets old enough, and they get that first tap. Hey, you should join this travel team. And then it's basketball, baseball, football, soccer, every single weekend with every minute in between just to do the laundry and I never see them again they have abandoned their faith journey for suburban young family opportunity and they're gone and, and I, I, I see them by the dozens and it's not that the people that lead these events are, are, are wrong or bad they just one of two things Either for them it's that one season and they run hard for that one season and there's an off season where you develop other things. Or all they know is youth sports and activities and they're living with a different set of values than you are and, you, and we got to get to the place where we're like, you know what, my kid's just not going to have that experience because I want them to know Jesus. And we set those boundaries. I know when it comes to wholehearted devotion, one of the biggest temptations, distractions for the suburban young family is opportunities that we don't want to rob our kids of because we're afraid we're going to set back our nine-year-old indefinitely because they miss out 
on that practice. And I'm right in it with you. But it's something that needs to be on our radar. Another <clears throat> common distraction is possessions. I mean, it's, it's almost cliche, but we want the bigger house, the bigger mower, the nicer car, the better title, um, and live in the nicer neighborhood, whatever. And, and a lot of our energy has to go toward that because we're competing with other people who don't know what we know about Jesus. And we can't hang with their achievements if we're also running after our faith and living to a standard of faith and being generous according to a faith. And yes, we are at a disadvantage that way. But we have to submit to that or else Jesus is number two. And that pursuit is, I, you know, I also see, um, I see guilt. I see guilt as a distractor from running wholehearted after Jesus. Our own, this is ironic, isn't it? Our own feeling of unworthiness keeps us from giving our heart to Jesus and strongly pursuing God's desire for us and from us because we feel like we're not good enough. And what we're really doing there is putting ourselves above Jesus because Jesus says, you're not good enough, you're right, but I'm calling you anyway, I'm inviting you anyway, and we're like, no, no, I just could never do that. What we're really doing there is we're putting ourselves above Jesus. So our own feelings are on the throne, and Jesus is secondary. And I also, one other thing, I see anger with other Christians as something that people put above what Jesus wants from them. I'll hear people say, um, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in Jesus and faith, but I just can't get over uh, all the headlines and the hypocrisy of other Christians. To which I say, okay, well, why don't you get in the arena then? Why don't you see what it's like to have Satan interested in the enemy, interested in destroying you and your faith, and then you can talk something. You get in the arena and show how it's done then. But I do. I hear it enough that people are like, I just can't take that step because I see the hypocrisy in others. And what you're doing there is you're putting some standard above what Jesus is calling you to do. Something is taking first. And it's not Jesus, or you would say yes to him. So those are just a few things that I see as like leading the way. The book of Ezra is about God calling his children out of exile to reestablish themselves as the blessed and protected people of God. They would have their feet firmly planted on solid rock if they could just stay devoted to God. They had to make very difficult choices about what could stay in their lives and who could stay and what and who needed to be cut out. Very difficult choices. We also need to make those choices. What do we need to start doing to put God first and what do we need to stop doing? What needs to go? So lightning round here of action steps. Let me read these two passages. These are two powerful passages. Second <clears throat> Chronicles 16.9 is worth memorizing. For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth 
so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What a promise. Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your paths straight. And there are many places in the Bible like that. That say if you will live with wholehearted devotion to God. Not that your life will be perfect. But that you will see the strong support of your God. Protecting you in response to your devotion to him. Two quick points of application. Number one, if you have not said yes to Jesus, this is an opportunity. You you can't make Jesus number one if you haven't said yes to him. You can't live wholeheartedly to Jesus if you haven't crossed the line of faith. Now, what the ancients did is they simply, it talks about their confession. They simply, with a spiritual leader, said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, or something along those lines. They confessed their faith in him. And their reliance on his sacrifice and his death penalty paid on their behalf. And then they were baptized. That's just what they did. Baptism was the ritual of going down under the water, symbolizing your death and burial. And then up out of the water, symbolizing your resurrection or new life or fresh start. The washing of sins. All of that. It was all wrapped up in that moment. That's how someone said yes to Jesus and began their wholehearted devotion to him. And if you haven't done that and you're ready to do that, just come see me. We'll get it done just like the ancients did. That's how you put the stake in the ground and say yes to Jesus. And then it's just a lifelong process that I'm still very much in, and that is what's in the way? What's in the way right now? What do I got to start doing? What do I need to stop doing to more wholeheartedly follow Jesus? And that's the lifelong process. And you'll have weeks where you're great at it and weeks that were terrible. You'll have seasons where you're like, what in the world am I doing? And other seasons where your heart is right lined up, where you got that quiet eye, and you'll experience God in a different level in those seasons of life. So there you go. There's Ezra. There's Cheeto's lip balm. What's distracting you? What do you need to do to get that quiet eye, to get that wholehearted focus and keep it? And I would say that, man, there is nothing more worthwhile than taking that journey and taking those steps and making those hard choices. So with that, I'm going to invite you to stand and I'm going to pray and we're going to do one last song. Father, you pursued us with wholehearted devotion. Your son left the comforts of heaven to take on flesh, to die on the cross, to bring us to you. That is wholehearted devotion. And he never lost sight. Pray that somehow we could follow you with something similar, with wholehearted devotion. Because you alone are worthy of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good week.